Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The scripture today comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English translation will be on the screen. Da Boaz havde spist et godt måltid mad, lagde han sig veltilfreds ned ved siden af en dyngen korn og faldt i søvn. Ruth løstede sig forsigtigt hen til ham, løftede kappen væk fra hans fødder og lagde sig der. Midt om natten vågnede Boaz med et sæt og blev meget forbavset over, at der lå en kvinde ved hans fødder. Hvem er du? udbrød han. Det er Ruth, deres tjenerinde, svarede hun. Jeg søger ly under deres vinger fordi de er en nær slægtning, og de har ansvar for at tabe med mig. Gud velsigne dig, min pige, udbrød han. Den godhed, du nu viser, er større end alt det andet, du har gjort. Du har ikke sat set på nogen af de unge mænd, hverken fattig eller rig. Du kan være sikker på, at jeg vil gøre alt, hvad du beder mig om, min pige. Alle ved, hvor storsindet en kvinde du er. Det er rigtigt, at jeg er en slægtning og har ansvar for dig, men der er en, som er nærmere beslægtet end jeg er, og står først i rækken. Bliv nu liggende, til, du bliver ly- til det bliver lyst, så vil jeg tage med ham i morgen. Hvis han ønsker at tage ansvaret for dig, så får han dig. Hvis han ikke er interesseret, så er jeg det i hvert fald. Det svarer jeg på. Men bliv nu liggende til i morgen tidlig. Så blev han liggende ved hans fødder til næste morgen. Men allerede inden det var lyst nok til, at nogen kunne genkende hende, stod hun op. Boris havde nemlig sagt, ingen må vide, at der har været en kvinde på tærskepladsen i nat. This is God's word. Please be seated. Morning, church. Uh, my name is Brian. If I've never met you before, I am the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Thanks for gathering here and tuning in at home. Make sure I'm on here. Uh, a couple announcements in terms of uh, the sermon series and the, the service coming up here. We're in the book of Ruth right now. Uh, and after this book, uh, that will get us to the beginning of June, we are going to switch to a three-week sermon series on the offices of Christ. If you're not familiar with those offices are, it's uh, Christ as king and priest and prophet. Uh, those are the, the three sermons that will get us to July. And then in July, we switch to uh, sort of an annual sermon series that we've been doing on summer in the Psalms. And um, we are, what, in the 60s now? So this would be uh, about the sixth uh, summer that we take about 10 Psalms and uh, we preach through those for a big chunk of the summer. And uh, hopefully, you know, in 15 years, we'll get them all covered. That's the goal. One reminder on July 4th, that is on a Sunday, that service is going to be pre-recorded and that will serve as a nice natural break for doing things a bit different on July 11th. On July 11th, uh, we will continue to stream the service as we have been uh, throughout the last year, but we're switching to only streaming the first half of the service, which is the Liturgy of the Word. Uh, so that goes from call to worship through the end of the message and the sermon. Uh, and then at that point, the stream will stop um, and the Liturgy of the Table or the portion of communion uh, for our service will just be in person. And the hope with that is we, we always knew that we were going to move back to more of an emphasis on in-person communion. Uh, we've done weekly communion throughout this pandemic and have practiced what's called so-called virtual communion. 
uh, to really try to maintain some sort of consistency, but we always knew it wasn't ideal and we wanted to switch back uh, to the more ideal in-person embodied experience of the communion table. So that is the plan to do that on July 11th. That doesn't mean, however, those that are, uh, for various reasons, still choosing to stream the service at home, that you won't have access to communion. What we're encouraging you to do is to reach out to us, and we're just going back to the old school practice of uh, a home visit where a church leader will take communion to you and practice safely uh, that sacrament with you. So that will occur on July 11th. And if you're streaming at home and you are interested in one of those home visits, please reach out to us. We'd love to set that up with you. Well, before we dive into Ruth chapter 3, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are centering our hearts and our lives again on you. That's why we pause on Sunday corporately as a local church, because you are everything. God, in your Son, you have done marvelous things, glorious things that have captivated us, that have changed our lives, that have restructured things to be more inclined to your ways and your love and your renewal of all things. So Holy Spirit, Help us to be again pulled to the kindness of the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I had a bit of a theological conversation this week with a four to five-year-old. It would be the guess of her age. She was visiting a uh, neighbor of ours, and uh, what often happens in our neighborhood right now is like there's this group of about 15 kids that just go up and down the block and play outside with one another. I was outside setting up. Uh, these gymnastic bars that the neighbor kids like to flip over and, and you know, risk injury on. And uh, I was setting those up, and this gal was there, this little girl was there talking to me, and she, uh, she was, was a, a little bit naughty. Uh, and she, in fact, admitted it. We were uh, trying to get the mat ready that is placed under the gymnastic bars, and so we were trying to wipe it down, but she would take a rag and kind of like fling it around like this and get me wet, and she thought that was hilarious. And she's like, I like to get uh, grown-ups wet with water. And I was like, well, do you like to get soaked with water? She's like, no, just grown-ups is what she said. And then she even said, like, sometimes I like to be naughty. I like to misbehave. And um, she says that when the big kids are around, meaning grown-ups, I try not to be, but when they're gone, I like to, like to be naughty. And this girl, she was, I was just really thinking this was hilarious that she's confessing these things to me. She doesn't even know I'm a pastor. Um, (laughs) And then I'm, I'm trying to put these bars together, and it takes a while. You have to put, like, some screws and nuts and bolts together and all that type of thing. So she was, she was getting antsy. She didn't like that she had to wait uh, for this to be done. And uh, I could tell that, and I said, well, you have to, you have to be patient. She's like, when's this going to be done? I want to I wanna go on these things. I'm like, well, you have, to, you have to wait. It's not done yet. You have to be patient. And then she says to me, this is so funny, she says, God did not give me patience. And I'm like, she doesn't know this, but like all these theological categories in my brain are exploding at this point, right? I'm just like, I said, in my heart, I'm just like, I'm like going through systematic theology, I'm going through verses. So I I keep all that in my heart, so I just simply say, well, that's not true. (laughs) I said, God gives everybody uh, patience, and it's kind of like a muscle. And if it's weak for you, you just have, you have to strengthen it by practicing it. 
and she thinks about it, this profound pastoral statement that I gave her, and she goes, no, God didn't give me that. <laughs> so that was the theological debate I had this week. Uh, I still think I was uh, in, on the right side, and this uh, four to five-year-old was not, uh, but she'll get there, maybe she'll visit again, and we'll have some more theological talks. Uh, but one of the things I was thinking about as it relates to this message, uh, we were talking about patience, but a huge theme of the book of Ruth uh, is the attribute, the character attribute of kindness. And just like patience, kindness is a muscle you can work. It's something that you can strengthen. In this uh, book of the Bible, and in, indeed the whole uh, of Scripture, kindness is rooted in who God is and his character. And when the word kindness is being used, sometimes it's translated as loving kindness in the Psalms. It, it's God's commitment in himself, this holy commitment to a people to reveal his glory, to be faithful to them, to be kind and gracious, abounding and steadfast mercy. All that is wrapped up in this word, kindness. And here in the book of Ruth, we have these characters that embody in very practical and tangible ways God's kindness. And we see that flushed out in the character of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And what they've been showing us is as we worship the God of kindness, this is a character trait in us that can grow and can be strengthened. God has indeed given you the ability to be kind and patient, but the focus here is kindness. So we continue to see this play out in Ruth chapter 3, and one of the most, um, I think, just fascinating chapters in this book, it's, uh, as you'll, you'll see in a little bit, this is one of the ones the chapters that I was really, really excited to tackle because there's so much going on here culturally, like what exactly is happening on this threshing room floor. And we're about to find that out here in a little bit. So turn your attention to Ruth chapter three. Let's start in verse one. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So here's the background. Several weeks have, has went by uh, from the moment that Ruth and Boaz just met. And Boaz is likely continuing in this time to show kindness to Ruth Naomi, and Naomi, providing for them. And now Naomi, uh, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, comes up with this plan to take the relationship between Boaz and Ruth to the next level. So Naomi reviews this problem that they're facing. Ruth and Naomi, they don't have a home, as she said. That is, they don't have a economic and emotional certainty that a family structure in the ancient Near Eastern context provided. This, in this context, having a family with husband and wife and extended family is the main social safety net in the ancient world. That's why it's such a big deal that Naomi loses her husband, that he dies, and that her two sons also die, and there are no kids after that. And one of those sons 
was who married Ruth, so Ruth also lost her husband. This means that they have been facing a day-to-day life of uncertainty and risk and insecurity. Now, after Naomi reviews that problem, she also notices some facts. The fact is, is that Boaz is a part of Naomi's extended family. He's going to be working at a specific location, and how Naomi knows this, we don't know. It's not detailed how she knows this information about Boaz. But Boaz is going to be working on this floor in an evening, and he's going to unwind there and go to sleep. So she is to keep an eye on her, on him. And we don't know why uh, Boaz is sleeping uh, in this, his place of work. Uh, there's a bunch of different theories as to why that is. It could be that there's a threat against some of the grain from thieves, and so he wants to keep an eye on it. Or maybe he's just an immensely productive person. Uh, he might be the equivalent if you have a coworker that has been known to like sleep in the office so he can just erase the commute and get right to work. It could be either one of those things, but he is known to be a person that that's where he's going to be. He's going to sleep there. So then Naomi comes up with the plan, and she asks Ruth to do the following things. Take a bath, put on some perfume, and put on a dress. And the dress here, you're probably imagining some type of like formal gown, something that's going to get somebody's attention. That's probably not what's going on here. This is likely not an outfit that's extravagant. Perhaps it's something just practically that she's putting on to stay warm because she's going to be doing this, this ask overnight. Or it could be symbolic because remember she's a widow who might be grieving, and there might have been a way she was expressing that with how she was dressing. So part of these initial instructions might be uh, to visibly show that she is not in grief anymore and she's open to remarrying. Then she's good to go to, go to the threshing floor. She's supposed to lay low and out of sight until Boaz falls asleep in the evening, and then he, she's supposed to uncover his feet and lie down next to him and then wait for his response and instruction. Now, we need to dig into what exactly is going on there, uncovering his feet and lying next to him. I remember so many times reading the book of Ruth, and I'm just like, what is going on there? Uh, How do you wrap your mind around what's going on there? Because I think there's some cultural stuff that's hard to pick up in just a straightforward reading of the text. And part of the way that we understand what the author is trying to communicate, and this it actually initially really complicates things. It actually makes things more confusing by trying to clear them up. The confusion is that these actions and the words in Hebrew that are behind these actions of uncovering somebody's feet and lying down are words that are also legitimately used in some contexts as sexual euphemisms. So they can have that meaning. So in that context, uncovering somebody's feet could be straightforward and innocent as simply Ruth is lifting up Boaz's tunic uh, above his feet and that he's going to get cold and then practically wake up for a conversation. It could be that innocent. It also could be a euphemism for a uncovering not his feet, but a certain part that's unique to males' bodies. If you need that to be unpacked a little bit more, I have a friend of mine he, who's a urologist. He'd love to meet with you, all right? So that's, we're in church. That's all the farther I can go. So that's one way it could be interpreted. In addition, lying down next to him could be as innocent as that, just lying down next to him, but it's also a euphemism for the equivalent of maybe the modern-day sleep with somebody. 
So in that sense, it could be just like you're going to sleep next to somebody, or it could be more. It could have a sexual connotation. And what's uh, odd about reading this book is that initially in this part of the story, you're not sure which way you're meant to take it. And I would say the author intentionally does that because she is setting up a legitimate tension on which way is this going to break. A more innocent and straightforward ask of Boaz to be the guardian redeemer, or is it going to break into this decision-making that is more sexual in nature? And what that will depend on is the character of Boaz and how he responds to these requests. So let's continue on. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and it was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So Ruth begins to go through with his plan. Boaz here, as he's eating and drinking, is likely not getting drunk. It's more likely that he's just unwinding after a long day of work. You folks probably do Netflix. He's just unwinding with drinks and food. And now he goes to a more private place uh, at his place of work that's more secluded and goes to bed. And Ruth quietly approaches him so that nobody knows what is going on. And she uncovers his feet and lies next to him. And then she waits. She waits likely several hours. Several hours. And you have to just go there with her in the moment to really appreciate this story. Because if the tension really is, and I think this is how the author's setting it up, that she's in this vulnerable situation where she's either going to go into this direction where Boaz responds with integrity and that he becomes a guardian redeemer and provides this, this social security for, the, for Ruth and Naomi, or it could break in a more scandalous direction. And me, she's lying there next to him in this vulnerable position, and may, she might even know that this could go one or two ways. Look at verse 8. So in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So it's the middle of the night, and something either startles Boaz awake, or another way that if you read some other translations, that that, uh, phrase is understood is that he woke up because he was cold. And this latter translation has some merit because practically maybe that's what uh, Ruth was trying to accomplish with uncovering the feet of Boaz is that he would wake up eventually in the middle of the night because he is cold so that she can have a conversation with him. So once he wakes up, he notices that there's a woman there. He doesn't know who it is, so he asks. And Ruth identifies herself as Ruth. And then note this, she does something that's not in Naomi's plan. She doesn't say to boldly request something. She's supposed to wait for his instruction. But Ruth gets bold in this moment, does more than that was asked of her in the plan of Naomi, and says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So she tells Boaz what to do next. And again, 
Boaz's understanding of that ask is entirely dependent on his character. Again, the request to cover her with a garment has a couple different meanings. You already know one of the innuendos there, but the more innocent ask here is for Boaz to cover her as the guardian redeemer through marriage. And it points back to chapter 2, verses 12, verse 12, where Boaz says this to Ruth in one of their first encounters. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So likely the author is pointing back to that blessing that Boaz gave to Ruth, that Boaz wants her to be cared for, to provide for, that she doesn't want her and her mother-in-law Naomi to live this day-to-day existence of being so anxious and worried about where their food is going to come from and how is their future going to look. He wants God to bless them and take them under the Lord's wings for refuge. So Ruth with this request, is essentially saying, now I want the Lord to use you to be a place of provision and refuge and comfort for my family through this cultural expression that we've been talking about. So, Boaz could respond in different ways here. And this sets up with all like the innuendos and the different meanings and the tension that's happening here. Boaz is about to respond. And he could respond by taking advantage of her and taking advantage of the situation. Or he could take advantage of her not through physical action, but by emotionally telling the village, telling the community what she had done and shaming her. He is in a position where he could do either one of those things. Or he could show her favor and kindness by responding appropriately to the innocent request that's being made. So, let's see what happens. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am your guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So Boaz, as we expect, responds as a person with integrity. Just as Ruth is a person of high character, kindness, and boldness, so too Boaz is a person of integrity, kindness, and generosity. And here's how he responds. He he observes her kindness. She is pursuing this marriage not for herself, just for herself, That's what he means by those phrases of younger men and riches or poor. He's saying that the the younger man is like a man of status or riches of of, of somebody that you would be leaning into this uh, just for money. But what he's essentially saying is that Ruth is not doing this type of ask just for herself, but he's acknowledging her, her continued kindness towards Naomi and what is going to benefit her as well. 
He makes a promise to her. He is going to do everything that she asks. He's going to serve her, and he's going to do that through marriage. Guardian Redeemer, again, is this ancient custom where family is taking responsibility for family. And what's important to note here is that a Guardian Redeemer didn't have to do that through marriage. In fact, it was more common not to do it for marriage. Boaz has no legal responsibility per se to be the Guardian Redeemer in this way, but his character means that he's leaning into it a little bit extra to do this role through marriage. But he reveals then a complication, that there is somebody that is more legally close to her that is now responsible for her livelihood. And there's no guarantee that that's how he would want to fulfill the responsibility. But nonetheless, because the same character that's in Boaz that would cause him not to take advantage of Ruth is also in play in that he knows this is the right way to do things. And he is not in the first in line to be able to fulfill this role for Ruth. So he has to do things the right way and he acknowledges that complication. But then he ends his talk with some reassurance. If this guy, he says, does not fulfill his duty, I will absolutely do it, he reassures Ruth. So they lay there until morning. Nothing inappropriate happens. These are two people with high character and kindness for this moment. And I guarantee, like it says, that they lay there until morning, that they probably didn't just fall back asleep. I bet their mind is spinning about what the providence of God is about to do next. And then we get to the morning, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and said, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured in six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So they get up, and Boaz is still making sure that Ruth is able to leave quietly. He doesn't want her actions to be misunderstood by the community and that they defame her character. He also gives her more barley, enough for her to carry on her person. And perhaps this gives Ruth a reason, if she's encountered by somebody, why she was there. She was there to get barley from Boaz, as she has been before, and nothing more. But we soon find out that it's also a gesture towards her mother-in-law, Naomi. We see that in verses 16 through 18. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Of course, Naomi wants to know what happens. Ruth tells her everything, and Ruth says the grain is for Naomi, which is likely this tangible sign of good faith that Boaz is extending to uh, Naomi. It's a sort of promise that Boaz is going to follow through. And that's how Naomi understood it. For she says, this man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now before I conclude, I want to reflect on uh, and share some reflections of application uh, that I had this week as I was thinking about this story and trying to flush out a little bit for our modern context this idea of embodied 
kindness, and especially in this specific moment. And one of the things I think you see here in the character of God as expressed in his people is that when God forms a people after his character, we see that good people of good character don't need laws to be kind and good. They'll be kind and good regardless, and they often will go above and beyond what the ask or the law, the letter of the law, is. We see that here. Ruth does so by boldly doing what Naomi asked and also going beyond the plan to make a bold request of Boaz. Boaz shows kindness by not doing the bare minimum of what is asked, but also agreeing to marriage and being a guardian redeemer through that. And the other thing I thought of is not only uh, the importance of character in general, but then I thought about this cultural moment that we've had. And we've talked about this before as Trinity City Church, but we're in kind of this era that, that, uh, that and the, the movement itself didn't happen that long ago, but what's called the Me Too movement. And many of you know that that's a movement that rightfully drew attention to the reality that many women find themselves in these vulnerable situations and then men take advantage of that situation. And it's a awful and horrible thing that happens. And that's, it's, I just couldn't help but think about that cultural kind of historical moment that we find ourselves in in reading this chapter of Ruth because here is a, a, a woman, Ruth, and she's in a vulnerable situation because of her her husband dying and the extended family members dying, so she's already in that position, and then she chooses to boldly put herself in another vulnerable situation in order that her life can get better. And she's throwing herself on the character and mercy of this man who has shown himself to be a person of noble character, but then she's in a moment where he needs to follow through on that. And the other thing I reflected on in light of Me Too and this story is that it's, it's been a good thing for us to really recognize this unique um, uh, experience and, and, and this, this unjust thing that happens often to women in our culture. But our culture rightfully has highlighted that. But on the other hand, our culture still often demeans the sexual ethic of Scripture which I always find that to be odd because those two things are at odds with each other. So scripture calls us, for example, to say that men don't lay a hand on women in this way, in an intimate way, unless we make a covenant of marriage publicly before friends and family, and we say faithful till death to us part. And in only that context, could these euphemisms go that direction? That's what we believe. And, and one of the things we see here is, is that that teaching is in play where, where Boaz believes in that, and that's part of the reason why he does not lay a hand on her, because certainly he believes that the only context in which that is appropriate is marriage. But as we know, just because you believe in that doesn't mean you follow through, and that's the other point we see here with Boaz, is Boaz is a person that not only believes in that relationship of marriage being the only appropriate expression for sexual intimacy, but he's a man of high character and kindness that reflects the goodness of God. And even in this moment, where if he wanted to let his character down, and maybe barely anybody could even know about that, he still cho chose quietly 
to be a man that's consistently kind, both in public and private. And that's what we see with him. That's what we want to cultivate here at Trinity. I've often talked about how we want to be a church that cultivates holy masculinity. And this is part of what holy masculinity means. It's being a man like Boaz who has kindness that expresses itself in honoring the women around you. And we want to cultivate holy femininity that's also kind, but a sort of kindness that can also be expressed with boldness. And one of the main ways we learn holy masculinity and holy femininity is by looking at kind examples that are embodied in other men and women like Boaz and Ruth and other men and women that are your brothers and sisters in Christ in the pew around you. Brothers, you want to know what it, is, what it means to be a man who is holy and set apart? Look to the men of character and holiness around you and see how they embody the kindness of God and then do that. Women, do you want to see what it means to be uh, expressing your femininity and kindness and boldness? Well, look to the women and the spiritual mothers around you, the spiritual sisters around you, and see how they embody that and then go and do likewise. And how we continue to cultivate this as a community, collectively, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we're learning in the book of Ruth, is by worship. We look to our kind God who expresses his covenant faithfulness and kindness to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to close this sermon. I want to see how there are three different themes that I see connecting to Christ and his kindness in the gospel. The first is that Jesus is the true and better place of refuge for us, in whose wings we go under for comfort and security. Jesus says in Matthew 23:37, he's lamenting his people in Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is the true and better place of refuge. He is the true and better guardian redeemer. He also is the true and better person who kindly and boldly followed the plan, even to his death, the plan of his father. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in the appearance as man, of, as man, this is talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Ruth also reflects the kindness of Christ in her boldness to follow this plan of redemption that Naomi laid out, but Jesus does it in a more magnificent and eternal way as the God, God the Father has laid out the plan of redemption for all people, and Jesus followed that plan, expressed his covenant kindness in following that plan, even if it meant laying down his life on the cross. And because of that, because of that, and because of the kindness and character of who Jesus is, we can confidently and boldly approach him with our request for forgiveness and redemption. Ephesians 3.12, in Jesus Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Just as Ruth felt comfortable boldly approaching uh, Boaz with this request for redemption because of his character, 
so too we can boldly approach Jesus Christ because his character and his kindness and who he is will not turn you away from grace and forgiveness. And so you can boldly go to him with that sort of confidence. That's the kindness of God embodied in God's people.